0: You're listening to Ants Talk. My next guest is a mental health speaker and best-selling author of a suicide prevention book series, Reasons to Live One More Day. Jazz Rawlinson lived in a violent family home, lost her father to suicide at 18, and was sexually assaulted at 20. She now works as an empowerment speaker, best-selling author, and writing coach. Let's talk more about her story. Welcome to the show, Jazz. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you so much for having me as a guest.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Your story is very fascinating. I love it. Let's get Thank into you. some questions, if we may. So, just tell us about your childhood.
1: So, I grew up in a tiny little valley community, really, in the mid-north coast of New South Wales. Have you ever heard of Coffs Harbour?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it well.
1: Yeah, so that that's where I grew up. And, um, yeah, my family and I... My family and I lived in this small little valley community, which was really beautiful and peaceful in many ways. I do have to say that I am really grateful that I got to grow up in such a beautiful space and I had a horse and chickens and dogs and got to go and explore a lot. So I was really lucky in a lot of ways. Um, And there were definitely a lot of really great things about my childhood. But there were also a lot of things going on behind closed doors that No one really knew about because this was the 1990s, there was no mental health or domestic violence awareness. And living in that small community, I was friends with um, one of the girls next door, but that was about it. I didn't have any other kids my age in the neighborhood. And so the only time I ever had. Interaction really, um, especially given we didn't have internet in in those days either, uh, was when I was at school, and I honestly didn't know what was going on in our house for a long time. So there was a lot of a lot of um, shouting and verbal and mental abuse from my dad, and sometimes some physical abuse from him towards my mum. Although I I don't remember really ever witnessing that I just remember the feeling of all, always walking on eggshells and never knowing what was going to set him off mm. and um, yeah so it was very uh, a very hostile and quite terrifying environment to grow up in and um, yeah as I said because I, I didn't even know what to call this situation I didn't speak to any of my friends or teachers or anyone at school for a long time really not until I was probably I think I was maybe sixteen before I told my best friend and my boyfriend um, and we'd been dating for quite quite a few months by that stage so yeah it was it was very a very lonely feeling as you know a young teen trying to navigate those feelings of um, feeling so helpless and alone mm-hmm. and also always feeling as though I was to blame for everything um, because one of the things that my dad used to do routinely was tell me that uh, he would transfer the blame for his behavior onto me. So he would say things while he was taking me to school in the morning, like, uh you know, if, if your mum and I are probably going to get a divorce now and if we do, it's all your fault. Oh. Um, and, you know, you should, you know, just, just blaming his behaviour on on me or mum and, yeah. and yeah. saying, you know, you'll never amount to anything and you're really stupid and all these things. So it was very difficult to deal with all of that, especially with not knowing what it really was and not mm. feeling like there was anyone to talk to.
0: Was he a drinker?
1: He wasn't, and I think wow. that's one of the things that surprises people.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: when I do my talks and presentations, I talk about the fact that it's so important to understand that mental health and domestic violence as well do not discriminate. And a lot of people often think that these issues impact mostly only on low socioeconomic communities and people with drinking and drug problems and my dad didn't have either of those (laughs) and i went to um you know a private um christian school so in many ways people would have said oh you must have been quite privileged and doing really well so how could you have had depression or how could you have had these things going on in your home but these issues don't discriminate at all and yeah my my dad wasn't he wasn't a drinker he would have his two light beers on a friday and that was that was about it so that's
0: amazing um so with your dad were there signs of your father's intent to end his own life
1: uh i think yeah that looking back there were it was difficult for my mum because she spent so many years trying to play the peacekeeper and trying to get him to get help for himself, trying to get him to come along to family counselling and all these things. And he was just so, you know, adamant uh, against all of it. He he wouldn't even take vitamins because to him anything that was supposed to help with his mental health or his mood meant that he was weak and he was failing. Um, So she tried for a long time. And along the way, he did many, many times say things to the fact that he, you know, he did threaten many times to to, that he was going to take his life. And um, mum would always try to get help for him and took that very seriously. But because he kept doing that year after year and his, you know, violence kept escalating and he never took any measures. He, he never made any attempts against his life. And like I said, he wasn't a drinker,
0: mm. a drug
1: taker. Um, it got to the point where it was kind of just like, oh, okay, here he goes again. He's saying yeah. that while the violence keeps escalating, um, it sort of began to feel after a long time like an empty threat. But the day that he did finally, that he did actually take his life, um there were things that that he was doing in the days leading up to that event that mum can see now was were there was a clear intent there and he was trying to um i guess get his affairs in order you know get everything in order because he knew what he was going to do yeah. but even to this day mum still doesn't know whether um you know because he had never attempted before she she wonders whether it was He did that in a moment where it was a cry for help and maybe he was hoping that mum would, you know, come and stop him, um, mm. you know, read his mind and know what he was going to do and come and stop him. So I went to work. I was 18. I had just finished high school. It was the very beginning of January 2004. Um, I went to mum, took me to work, dropped me off in town, Apparently, my dad had been up since 3 a.m. that day and he had been out mowing the lawns from a very early hour on the property, which you can see now why he was doing that. Um, And there were things leading up to that day. So, for example, he'd been trying to get full time work for a long time, and there was a, a particular place he'd been working for quite a long time I think, quite a number of years and he was doing a really great job there. And I think he was going for a promotion or something like that. And he was passed up and the, the job was given to um, a female employee who didn't really have any experience for that role. I think they were trying to, you know, do something around gender equality. Um, she didn't have the experience for it. And that really, really knocked my dad. And I think that was one of the the final straws for him. Mm. That he just felt like, what, what's the point? So, yeah, he was... Um, up early mowing the property. I was at work. Um, my mum was inside with my with, with my younger sibling, and yeah, he said he was going to go out to go out to the shed and you know kill himself. And mum just went, oh, "Okay, here we go again." Because like I said, it was a something he'd said so many times over the years, and every time she tried to get him help, and she this time she was just like, "Okay, it's just." He's saying that again, another blackmail manipulation thing. Um, but, yeah, that w- that was the day that he did actually take his life. So she had to deal with that, call the ambulance um, in those situations. Like I can only imagine how horrific it was oh, for her okay. because, you know, dealing with that situation um, and then she had to come into town and pick me up from work that afternoon. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, on, on top of all that. So it was, it was incredibly surreal when she picked me up and my neighbour actually came to uh, the doors of the shopping centre to wait for me to finish work and took me out to the car where my mum was and they explained, you know, what had happened but it just didn't make any sense. It was completely surreal to me.
0: It would have been. It's funny that I myself in my own family have had to deal with suicide and with people's mental health where they will make those sort of idle threats Mm. now and again and people yep. sort of write them off and then one day it actually happens. Yes. Um, and they leave the survivors with such a sense of guilt after it because yep. like you said, we were supposed to mind read and know which one of mm. those times was the times that it actually exactly. was meant to happen. Um, it, it's such a hard thing to deal with. Um, I can't even begin to imagine what it was like being your own father because mine have been sort mm. of other relatives, but Absolutely mind-blowing, the way the mind works when it's not working at its full capacity. Absolutely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. What were the after effects after his passing?
1: So one one of the things that I often share at events is that that time for me, as well as being so surreal, it was interesting because, you know, I was on the cusp of going from, I guess you'd say childhood to adulthood, finished school, turned 18. And I just had had this idea in my head, my whole, you know, most of my life since age 10, when when all the violence first started, that if my dad was out of the picture, everything would go back to normal. And I used to just think all the time, um, you know, and this was why I suffered from so much guilt as well after his death was because i was always wishing that he would disappear and of Mm. course i didn't want him to to die you know or disappear in that way i just really wanted the abuse to stop yeah um i wanted a way a way out of that abuse um and so when he was gone i thought okay everything's gonna be normal now i'm finally going to have the childhood that all my friends have had like have. I'm going to be able to go where I want, when I want, and and not feel controlled. I'll be able to have friends over and not always be worried about being punished afterwards for you know having fun and things like mm. that. Um, but that's not not really how things work because I hadn't addressed any of the trauma that I had gone through for the last eight years. Yeah. So to cut a really long story short. Um, Yeah, I went out into the world. I wouldn't say I was, you know, I never did drugs, um, but I started to drink a fair bit. And um, being such a tiny person as well, you know, it didn't take very much alcohol to impact me. So I I was going out every weekend with friends, trying to discover what life outside of school was and just making a lot of really bad decisions about who I was spending my time with and going after a lot of very unhealthy um men and relationships and and one of those relationships um yeah was was what ended in a sexual assault when i was 20 so for those 2 years between losing dad and and that happening i was i guess you know i have to look back at my own it my my own life and the decisions i made and i know that they were made out of trauma and not understanding mm. how to form healthy relationships and set boundaries for myself. Um, I take responsibility for that. But, yeah, I was just playing with fire a lot. I was pursuing things that I knew were not healthy and everybody was warning me to stay away from. Um, and that's, yeah, what, what led to that event and, um, yeah, having to having to deal with more trauma and having more trauma to work through it at quite a young age. So
0: It's funny too because a lot of the time um, when we are that age, you almost attract the stuff that you're trying to get away from.
1: Yes, absolutely. And
0: it's and especially in relationships, I've been through it all myself. I know exactly what you're talking <laughs> about. Um, and it's funny that we do that. It's it's almost like we, we we're attracted to things that we think we can possibly even maybe change and mold into what mm. we really wanted out of it. Yeah. But then again, it, it never works, and it always just results in the same sort of trauma that we've. Been, been escaping really.
1: Mm. And continuations of those unhealthy patterns that we want to leave behind, but we don't know how. So, like you said, we keep attracting what's familiar and yeah. going after pursuing that. And that's exactly what I was doing.
0: How was your mum after your dad's passing?
1: Oh, well she's just always been such a strong person and I guess living through dad's abuse all those years and trying so hard to be the mediator and trying to keep things as calm as possible. She just continued on in the same role she'd always played, which was, um, you know, you just got to get on with life. There's no time to sit around and feel sorry for yourself or, um,
0: I suppose wallow in yourself pity.
1: Yeah. yeah. She had to look after us kids. Um, you know, uh, My brother was still in school and his birthday actually, his 11th birthday was only a couple of days after dad took his life Mm. and she made sure that all his mates were there and they had a great, great party down the Creek and things like that. And um, you know, she continued working. I don't remember her really having much time off work and she hasn't ever since. Um, So she just continued on. She through all of that she also had to have a double hip operation i think in that year following and that was when yeah there was a bit of friction between us because i was kind of now in this rebellious stage of um being like well i can live my life now and do what i want and And i was wanting to go out party. (laughs) and she was asking me calling me saying i need you to come home and help you know help me put my shoes on and stuff because she Couldn't even um, bend down to to do her shoes up at that time. I think that might have been just like leading up to the surgery and then after the surgery I had to help her with stuff. And it was a hard time. But, yeah, she had so much to deal with and she just got on with it. And I never remember her having counselling
0: or anything like that.
1: Oh, yeah. Way way stronger than I ever imagined somebody could be.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Make sure you subscribe to Ants Talk.
0: Now, what drove you to write the books?
1: So after, you know, I guess going through so many tough things, um, you know, it was a long journey for me to find my voice and find what I actually wanted to do in life. So it wasn't until I was uh, age 30 that I finally started to get into my career and I was working as a, an assistant magazine editor and I was doing, um, yeah, all kinds of stuff. I was like writing music reviews for bands in Brisbane and doing a lot of different things around writing, volunteering with some really great organizations like destiny rescue, which I know one of your recent guests was talking about as well, which is pretty cool. Um, and just really trying to find out where I fit in the world and what I wanted to do. And, um, it was in 2016, I would have been about 30, and a friend and I, we had been doing, both of us are really passionate about domestic violence awareness, um, and we had decided to create this Domestic Violence Memorial in Brisbane, um, which is a permanent space where uh, survivors and and family members of people who have lost their lives to domestic violence can come and sit by this beautiful waterfall just in, in Brisbane City. and. Um, yeah honor their memory and yeah I guess I finished that we finished that project and I just I kind of was thinking well what am I going to do next because I just felt that it was so important for me to continue to finding continue to find ways to um yeah make our communities stronger and better places and it it just came to me one night um I was thinking about how far I'd come in life and thinking, oh gosh, this is so odd that I'm speaking out about issues like domestic violence and writing about human trafficking and child abuse and things like that. Because, um, you know, for for so much of my life, I didn't see myself as the kind of person who um, would have a voice to speak about things or anything great to input because my dad had spent so long putting me down. Um, So, yeah, I, I just thought, wow, like, I've actually come a really long way and as a 10-year-old, I never would have thought I could get up on a stage and speak in front of people or do any of these things and I thought, well, if I've done it, surely, you know, there are a lot of other amazing people around Australia with with similar stories to share that could really uplift those people in our community who are still on their journeys and haven't worked out yet how to transform their pain into purpose and meaning. And um, yeah, I just really wanted to find a way to use the power of storytelling to help other people understand that wherever they are in their journey right now, it's not where they have to stay. They don't have to remain in that depression and anxiety and hopelessness, you know, for the remainder of their life. There are so many things that they can um, experience, so many joyful things they can experience. And there are also so many surprising ways that we can use our pain and our former trauma to actually help other people. Um, And so that was the um, inspiration for creating reasons to live one more day every day, which became this book series, which I've now published two books in that series and I'm slowly working on a third one. And what they are are collections of 10 stories from people around Australia or around the world who've gone through everything from, you know, veteran PTSD and eating disorders to child abuse, the loss, you know, the loss of a child, domestic violence, institutional abuse, like so many issues that are really taboo in our societies that some, you know, quite often don't get talked about because Mm. they're kind of seen as too shameful or too dark Um, and helping those people to, yeah, rewrite their life with, you know, purpose and, meaning and really discover themselves on a deeper level and what you know how far they've come and then it's a two-fold approach so it's helping that person on their own healing journey um by writing their story and then using their story to help other people on their healing journey as yeah. well
0: because yeah, that was my next thought. question because you um you also work helping other people to write
1: hmm yeah that's right so um so I work as a mental health mental wellbeing speaker, and then along with you know it started off as just authoring these book series the first book and then I went into actually doing the writing mentoring for people who specifically want to work with someone like myself to teach them how to write their story in you know around three thousand words um, and have it actually published um, by an award-winning publisher and yeah, just to be able to see their story in a paperback book, yeah, know that their story is impacting people all around the world. Um, the people that I work with for these book series are the sorts of people who would be unlikely to ever have the opportunity to write their own book. You know, they may not have um, the skill set to write their stories, which is where I come in and ghostwrite it for them. Some people um, may not have the money or maybe – I guess, the tenacity or the time to sit down and write a whole book. Um, and so that's why we do it in these short 3,000-word um, chapters. And then that becomes the book. Um, and there are resources in the book as well. So it, it ties together, you know, mental health resources, um, interviews with experts, and the lived experience stories as well.
0: Now, as you just said, you also work um, in public speaking, talking about many issues, including domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Why do you think domestic violence is so prevalent?
1: Oh, that's an interesting one. Um...
0: I mean, because as we were just saying before, it, it it these sort of issues aren't you know discriminatory. They, they it can be mm. a rich family, poor family, drinker, non-drinker, exactly. mental health issues, no mental health issues. I'm just wondering if. You know, we sort of focus on a possibility of why it is so prevalent. I mean, Mm. even I was just speaking to another guest just before and even just recently we've seen that the numbers have increased since our lockdown and isolation Yes, COVID. Um, And we even had a murder here only days ago in in South Mm. Australia. Yes, I just heard about that. It's just, it it baffles me. It really does baffle me.
1: Well, there are so many reasons why domestic violence occurs. And like you said, it it comes from all all different scenarios and backgrounds. But really when you break it down, it comes back to I'd say two things. One is unresolved trauma, intergenerational trauma, and the other one is a lack of self-love really because when you look at situations of violence, they always come back to control. A person's need to control somebody else Um, and a need to control, you know, stems from a lack of self-security. So we have, you know, communities of of people with unresolved trauma, with self-esteem and and a lack of self-security in their life and that plays out in a lot of different ways for some people uh, like my dad, it can manifest in, um, self-destructive patterns. So yeah, you've got people who will self-destruct by using drugs or alcohol. Um, you know, obviously my dad didn't do that, but he refused to get help for himself. So he was slowly self-destructing. He was also then, um, you know, I'm sure he had his own mental health issues that he was not addressing. He had trauma from his own um, childhood and youth that he Mm. refused to address. And um, I'm sure that that played a part as well. But we see, you know, so many of my clients, um, or I'd say, I'd say probably every single female client of mine, or almost every single female client of mine has been, is, I should say, either a survivor of child abuse or domestic violence. And when I work with those women, um, it often comes out that it's a generational pattern. So yeah, there was yeah. violence in the grandparents' house and then the parents' house and then that was passed down to them and then they often, you know, so women often gravitate, as I did, into violent relationships, whether it's, You know, and people still to this day often think that a violent relationship is a physical one, but violence can be, um, you know, spiritual abuse. It can be financial abuse, emotional, mental, you know, I, my family, it was mostly mental and emotional and verbal with some physical. Most of my clients, they end up going through, um, yeah, a combination of, of uh, financial and verbal and sexual and physical abuse I'd say are the most common ones but yeah they are often just repeating the patterns that they have experienced or or witnessed um, in their own parents Um, and for many of them having gone through child abuse or child sexual abuse as well that trauma in their own lives then manifests into them either becoming um abusive themselves towards other people or becoming abused by other people. so
0: mm. it's, um, it's definitely an issue that needs to be focused on, I think. I mean, I know that the government and the police force and stuff like that are really trying mm. to change the way and, and have a few more resources mm. out there and stuff like that. But it just, yeah. I think it, it, we all need to put the effort in and, and really try and get some resolution. Yeah, know, in, and,
1: in and in terms of, like, how we can actually change this, because... Domestic violence awareness is this this never-ending thing where everybody's aware, but the rates are not declining. Um, and I think it comes back to, you know, obviously we would, we would wish for every child to have a, a safe and healthy upbringing, but that's not possible. Mm. So we do yeah. need the awareness so that, um, you know, family members, friends, teachers can try to uh, be aware of the warning signs so that when they notice that a child is exhibiting some of these particular behaviours that could be a red flag, that they're experiencing something abusive in their homes, they can try to come into that child's life and and talk to them and and help them through it. Um, But another thing that is a a really huge influencer in domestic violence around the world is actually the increasingly um, younger and younger exposure of children to pornography so because we have and this is something it's not oft, you know we are having more public discussions and you will see more public discussions these days but it is still a bit of a taboo thing and people don't understand just how many children are accessing pornography um before they're even 10 years old and we're seeing children now who are coming across bestiality (laughs) um, at, you know, four, five, six, we've got most, uh, you know, the majority of children are exposed or especially boys have seen pornography before the age of 12. So you've got all these kids who are witnessing hardcore pornography that they um, are not cognitively able to decipher and understand before they've even had their first kiss You've got kids who are in primary school um, coming to school and someone on the bus has shown them pornography on their phone, or a kid in the playground is making a joke about something they've seen online, or you've got those children who tragically are being sexually assaulted and exploited in their homes, so they're being exposed by an adult in that scenario. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very easy to understand how it, when a child is exposed to that kind of content as a child all they can see is oh okay this is um this is something that men do to women like this is how men behave towards women and as boys grow up you know having watched so much pornography from a young age they're not bad kids you know that it's not something inherently wrong with with them or you know this isn't a case of boys just being inherently um violent or sexist they're literally being brainwashed from a young age to think oh okay this is actually what want- what girls like yeah. so this is what I'll do because it'll show them that um you know
0: they're that love. I'm a man yeah
1: they will like this because um you know there was a study that was done um back in the early 2000s of the most prominent at that time or popular adult videos and content and it it showed something like i can't remember the exact statistic but it was something like 88% of it was in the 80s or 90s say 88% of um uh, the female um performers in these videos would respond to aggressive or violent acts with um pleasurable uh or affirming responses So, you know, it's very easy to see how a child would watch that and go, oh, okay, girls actually like this. This And so that is a big driver of um, domestic violence. And we've had police and domestic violence shelters and child safety experts and many, many different um, experts in society saying that they are seeing huge spikes in um, domestic violence stemming from men with pornographic addictions, you know, that have mostly developed from childhood.
0: It's funny, that was one of the points that someone brought up for me when all this um, lockdown and isolation stuff came up Mm. recently, that the importance, because I was dead against the kids being sent to school still, Mm. um, for my own reasons, anyone can have their opinion, but that's mine but someone actually mentioned to me and they said for a child that's being abused at home, that might be their only safety haven is going Mm. to school. And I didn't even consider that. I hadn't even thought of it. And it was like, oh my God, you're right. It's stuff like that. that's such an eye opener. It really is.
1: Yeah. Well, I think about my own experience and if I hadn't had school to go to, I would have been completely isolated, and yeah. yeah, my heart really breaks for all those kids right now who are, you know, current current victims and survivors of child abuse, and mm-hmm. and are now literally in lockdown with their abuser and unable to to seek help.
0: Yeah, so. it's crazy. Jazz, um, while we finalize the interview, can you let the listeners know where they can find out more about you?
1: Yeah, sure. So people can find out more about my series Reasons to Live One More Day Every Day or my speaking or my writing at jazzrollinson.com. And you can also find me on social media, um, either as Jazz Rulinson, or um, you can look up the, the book on Facebook as well, Reasons to Live One More Day Every Day.
0: And it's Rawlinson. No, G, <laughs> I learned that before the interview. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, Raw Rawlinson. Yeah. So Rolinson. it's J
0: A S R A W L I N S O N.
1: Yeah, that's
0: Fantastic. it. Jazz, thanks so much for sharing your story with me. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure the listeners will too. And um, all the best with your endeavours. I think it's amazing that you're um. You're allowing other. You're not only helping yourself, but you're also helping other people tell their stories, and and it just continuing the circle. I think it's absolutely brilliant.
1: No, thank you. I really appreciate that, and really appreciate the the chance to come on your show today. So, no thank problem.
0: you very much. Thank you. Speak soon. Dance talk.
1: It's like Oprah, but not.